0: Thought Capital. Quality of life will be dramatically different. COVID will change cities.
1: People will try to rebuild. The US and China are not doing the right thing.
0: Consume and spend. If we have a similar
1: crash in our housing market. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. We would be utterly devastated.
2: Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, this is Thought Capital from Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Michael Pascoe. In this special series, we're looking to connect the dots on the effects of COVID-19 with the help of the experts from Monash Business School. Migration has fallen off a cliff, Our birth rate is falling, unemployment is rising and the central business districts are desolate as many continue working from home. What will all this do to our cities and property prices after the pandemic has had its way? Will they ever be the same? The doomsayers have been predicting an Australian property bust for decades with little success. Certainly there have been corrections along the way, hard corrections in some regions, but the Australian love affair with bricks and mortar rolls on. Could this pandemic make a difference though? Or is this a very different sort of recession for the property industry? Traditionally, our post-war recessions were sparked by rising interest rates trying to cool the economy and succeeding too well. This time, rates were falling before COVID struck in an attempt to stimulate weak growth, and the instant economic crash was met with an unprecedented monetary and fiscal response. Money has never been cheaper, but population growth has never been slower yet more uncharted waters to navigate. So let's start with taking a look at what might be in store for the property market with Dr. Jason Chu from the Department of Banking and Finance and an expert on property investment. Welcome. Have you ever seen greater uncertainty about the outlook for residential property?
1: No, Michael, uh, um, we've never seen greater uncertainty. It's not just uncertainty in the traditional risk areas. It's new. Risk factors, geopolitical risk, uh, population risk factors, uh, a whole host of of things that we've never had to contend with before. So yes, uh, it's very, very new, very, very uncertain. And yeah, lots of people are scratching their heads as to what will happen next. Well, what do you think will happen next? I am actually quite optimistic about the housing market. And I think governments all around the world and reserve banks all around the world recognize The importance of housing for consumer sentiment and consumer spending. As a developed economy, the majority of our economic drivers come from domestic consumption. And if we have a similar crash in our housing market as they did in the United States, we would be utterly devastated. And the government is absolutely desperate to prevent that from happening. And I believe that if there was any risk of that happening this time around, the government would step in as aggressively as needed. Now, basically, the government can throw money at the market, but the market has to bite. So that's the other side of the coin. Will the market bite? And generally, right now, I believe so. But we are in unprecedented times, but the the government has a history of of supporting
2: the housing market, and I believe they'll continue to do so. The market doesn't want to have a crash, but at the same time, the government has to deal with a forecast of a million fewer people in this country than they were expecting 12 months ago. Uh, The government also has to deal with rising unemployment and uh, a lot more uncertainty there's a difference between a crash and the market perhaps coming off
1: 10%. Absolutely. The government and the regulators are quite comfortable with uh, a correction. Uh, we saw such a correction from 2010 to 2012. The market fell by approximately 10%. And all in all, uh, that's a that's very comfortable Uh, for the government, because it means that uh, some overvaluations are are reverting back to their values and also things become a bit more affordable, particularly for our first-home buyers. However, when the government uh, faced the possibility of a US-style crash of, say, 30 or 40%, they went in with with all guns blazing. Um, First-home buyers grants of up to $27,000 back during the GFC, enormous incentives uh, to get people spending. And And one thing I'll add to that is Australians are in record debt. The government may wish us to borrow more money to buy a house or to invest in a house, but people may not be willing to because, number one, they're already overburdened with debt. And you'll notice a lot of polls and interviews now about how people would spend their tax rebates and and their tax savings. And the government wants us to spend it, but all the polls are saying that people will not spend it. They'll actually save it to pay down their debt.
2: We saw that with the first round of uh, tax cuts, and uh, that was before COVID when things were relatively certain in the outlook. Uh, short of that, shall we call it the Reserve Bank put, short of that sort of pressure on the market, though, uh, where's the demand meant to come from? There is a bit of a
1: cushion there from cashed up, very liquid investors, foreign and domestic are looking for significant buying opportunities. So that may provide a cushion, but how much of a cushion then that hasn't been tested yet?
2: Well, pre-COVID, the government made it harder for foreign investors to put money into residential real estate. That particular part of demand weakened. Uh, from an investor point of view, rents are down. Sydney and Melbourne have both had a boom, and traditionally, after those markets boom, they then go flat and the capital gains Of view for several years, uh, would it make any sense for an investor to be putting money down now? One very important thing is our
1: exchange rate. Uh, Our exchange rate, particularly when it was 62, 63 cents the US dollar, made our property even more attractive compared to a couple of years back when our exchange rate was a lot higher. The number one buyer are actually US investors. Back a couple of years ago, it was Chinese investors. So, yes, foreign investment has been tightened up, but at the same time, uh, those extra costs and the extra stamp duty which is imposed is very much mitigated by the fall in our dollar and also the longer-term perspectives of foreign investors. Lots of foreign investors, when they look at property from a speculative perspective, their time horizon is not months, it is years. Uh, potentially two or three or even five years into the future. And what are the economic prospects of Australia over the next medium term? I would say still relatively good. Our fundamentals are still quite strong. And in terms of population, Australia remains still very popular. The federal government can just turn on the population tap again and get population flowing in. There are some medium to long term greater risks because of the geopolitics between the largest trading partner, China and and Australia. Um, But if that can be managed, then yeah, I think the prospects of Australian properties still look quite good for a medium-term recovery.
2: In terms of what's ahead of us, though, rather than what's behind us, can you realistically expect domestic investors to be into the market in the next year or so when the demographics are running against them when there's so much uncertainty?
1: Yes, I I do think so. And that's where things get interesting because the investor and the entrepreneurship mindset is is quite different from the mainstream mindset. Investors and entrepreneurs are very much contrarians. Everybody says, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. They will say, hmm, I'll do it. (laughs) And the reason being is because um, they're looking for steep discounts.
2: The other side of the residential market, aside from price, is the importance of the construction industry. Residential construction was already trending down before COVID. The Treasury and the Reserve Bank were betting very heavily on an upturn in construction in 2021 to pull the economy up before we fell into this hole. Has that hope, has that uh, ambition on the part of authorities been dashed?
1: No. The regulation and the stimulus that you talk about needs to be considered in line with other Stimuluses. By itself, the prospects are quite minimal. But that particular stimulus, along with the tax stimulus, along with other measures which are meant to inject cash and confidence in the economy, but also something very important that the government hasn't really talked about yet population. Population is the key underlining driver for all economic activity and property, rents and prices and so forth. And the government, I imagine, in the future, to make up for the fall in population, would actually increase immigration quotas. And by that way, hopefully very quickly, restore the confidence in the market that yes, the Australian population is growing at a sufficient level to bring back that consumption and investment activity back to hopefully pre-COVID levels. So it's not just one, it's it's that multitude. Uh, and, and hopefully with good governance, hopefully they'll go down
2: that route. It would seem the only part of the residential market where there is a great deal of demand yeah. is in social housing. If there was a surge in investment in extra social housing from state governments. What would that do to the bottom end of the investor market?
1: I'm, I'm a strong proponent of added investment into social housing. The extra stock in social housing may not, in my opinion, adversely affect too much uh, our normal standard stock of property, which tends to be very high quality, which tends to be much more highly priced. But from that perspective, I think that there is um, a lesser risk of a drag on the market from excess supply because that supply is very targeted towards a segment of the population that, in my opinion, really needs it and there's an extra need for now.
2: Moving on to the commercial side, Australians tend to focus on residential, but is the real challenge in the next year or so in commercial, as in floors of CBD buildings that are empty? Absolutely.
1: COVID-19 has drastically changed the commercial property landscape. Definitely office space, I believe, uh, will we'll, we'll see a sharp correction in values. If and when these particular types of properties go on sale, there's great hesitancy for owners of, of office buildings to actually sell because they don't want to realize the losses because that would signal uh, that throughout the market. That's one thing. And within that market, which is so stressed, they would really try to come up with new inventive ways of, of changing their style, changing their perspective to find productive uses for that type of, of space where now, it looks into the near future at least, we won't be going back to the office in the same way that we did before. And on the other hand, you've got a boom in warehousing. Uh, you've got a boom in the type of property infrastructure which is used to support online and e-commerce. And the boom in warehousing, the boom in storage, the boom in logistics, uh, that is sort of a sort of an unsung success story. So there, there exist opportunities, but also there exist great abysses.
2: And the traditional cycle of Sydney in particular, but Sydney and Melbourne, Birmingham, then going flat, and the lesser capitals tending to catch up towards those prices before Sydney and Melbourne take off again. Uh, is there greater potential in Adelaide, Brisbane, Canberra?
1: it's tied to the economic base and it's tied to the population growth of those regions. And let me add in another dimension to that, which would be the distribution of population, not just in metropolitan areas, but the spread out towards regional areas. I think that has been uh, um, a very keenly followed pattern where people are now considering, seriously considering moving and staying further away from the city simply because they can work from home. So I see this as as, a positive for the, the population being more spread out, Um, within metropolitan and suburban and across the capital cities, as opposed to um, the very deep concentrations of population, particularly among new migrants, into Melbourne and Sydney.
2: A lesson of our last recession, 1991, was that Australians are very slow to throw in the towel on their own home. Even with double-digit unemployment, we didn't have quite the surge other countries see in houses being handed in. Expect that to continue?
1: Absolutely. The sort of regulation and the culture that we've built up with housing is that it's the Australian dream. We got it. We keep it. Uh, and part of that is also because the home loans in Australia are what we call recourse loans. So, in other words, if you don't <laughs> you don't meet your loan repayments, the bank can chase you for your car, for your money, for your dog, your pet, anything else that they can chase you for, they will. Um, and as a result that particular liability, even though it's not front and centre in our minds, has really contributed to building up a culture of, yes, we will protect the family home. It's our bastion. It's our castle. So, yes, uh, I believe that um, we'll still continue to, uh, to hold on for dear life.
2: From the particulars of property prices to the bigger picture of the life of our cities themselves – Cities grow and change, ossify and rejuvenate. The inner city was for the gentry. The gentry moved out to new suburbs, slums moved in, the car dominated planning, commuting exploded and reaction set in. Gentrification took hold and the gentry, or at least the relatively wealthy, moved back in again. But suddenly a virus empties offices. Commuting is questioned by successfully working from home. Cities are challenged again. It's a particular pleasure to welcome an expert on cities and all things urban, Oxford professor and Monash Business School adjunct professor, Tony Venables. Tony, will COVID 19 change cities or will we all go back to our wicked ways? COVID will
0: change cities, but less than a lot of people are suggesting and less than other major trends that are going on. Cities will continue to thrive. I mean, throughout history, cities have been dens of plague and pestilence spanish flu it was a time of very very rapid american urbanization and spanish flu didn't didn't slow down the growth of new york or you know the the big american cities but they did kick governments into bringing in public health measures improving sanitation but i think it is important to think through rather carefully the the ways in which covid will change cities
2: and how how do you think they'll change I mean, the first thing that
0: people tend to forget, but is rather important, is that buildings aren't going anywhere, right? (laughs) You know, buildings are very long-lived structures. So the idea that um, there's going to be some radical change in the way cities look in the short or even the medium run is is just wrong. But the other change that will have brought about is that it will have accelerated the adoption of new technologies, the most obvious one of which is the possibility of remote working we've all discovered with that as background you know the building stock um the endemic covid and the possibility of remote working you know how, how do we think those things combine together to change the way cities will look like well two-thirds of people won't be able to work from home right In the nature of the job obviously if a service worker a health worker you know manufacturing you have to go into work so, you know, these changing work patterns will only affect, you know, at most a third of the labour force. And then I think you have to look at it, okay, we have had this possibility of, of remote working. We have to look at it both from the individual side uh, and, and the employer's side. From the individual side, what work pattern would you like to adopt uh, in future if you can work from home? I suspect that for most people, it's going to be going into work yeah, at least two or three days a week. Do we like uh, working from home five days a week? Well, I don't. Obviously, the other side of that equation is, is, is the employer side. Evidence is beginning to come through that people are less productive when they're working at home. Lots of stories of firms now introducing spyware so that when you're online, they're taking random pictures of, uh, of your screen to know exactly what you're doing that direct productivity effect um, will militate against employers wanting you to work at home. But then more importantly, it's the interaction. All the agglomeration cluster stuff. To be creative, we have to talk to colleagues.
2: While for the individual company, productivity might be a question for society more broadly, isn't there a leap in productivity through the commuting time that's no longer required? Isn't that an immediate free kick? Yes,
0: but actually being employed in the city centre, in a sense, becomes more attractive in this world with remote working. You don't have to you know, commute every day. The big downside of working in the city centre has just been been, been relieved. The, the, the city worker is the beneficiary of not having to spend this, this time this time commuting, there's a view that maybe more people will end up working in city centres than before. Fewer there on any one day, but more people actually being employed. So the city hinterland will spread, right? The city commuting zone, rather, uh, will spread. People from further out will find it worthwhile to uh, move into the city.
2: At present, there are certainly vast empty spaces in our major cities, And in Australia's case, given the collapse in immigration, there are empty units, empty flats. Is there an argument that at a price, all things clear, that enterprises that perhaps would never have thought previously about being in the central business district could take up that space?
0: Yeah, I think think that's absolutely right. The stock of buildings is, is still there, but the price of buildings... Um, you yeah, know, the, the rental rates will probably go down somewhat in the centre.
2: Do you expect the prices to fall somewhat or could, could it be drastic?
0: I don't know. I would guess in the medium run, in the long run, somewhat not drastic. I mean, when, once you get to the longer term, you've obviously got to think about new construction and all that and probably will be a bit less new construction because prices will have fallen a bit. But it won't be choked off completely. It won't be you know, prices dropping so low that it's not worth building anything.
2: Technical progress and climate change are already having a large impact on our cities. Is that being accelerated by the pandemic? And are city planners proving too slow to react?
0: Yes, I think, think, think they surely are. I mean, obviously, climate has the, the two dimensions of um, mitigation and uh, adaptation. So, yeah, you know, obviously, mitigation is um, just reducing emissions, And, yeah, maybe COVID will give a bit of a positive positive kick to that, restricting car travel more. Certainly in London, there's been a big push to um, close roads, increase cycle lanes, widen pavements, sidewalks, just to to make city city centres more pedestrian and cycling friendly. So COVID's given that a push. The other thing that might give it a push, certainly in London, is public transport companies are always in a terrible financial position right now. So in London, there's a proposal that the congestion charge, the tax on cars entering the centre, be hugely increased to a much wider area. Uh, But but that's just a financial thing to to raise money by uh, taxing cars in the centre. So, yeah, cities have been been slow on these carbon mitigation policies. and, And COVID might give that a positive kick forwards.
2: In terms of the waves of the gentry moving out from the city centre and then the well-paid moving back in, will we see that wave reverse again or at least even out if the attraction of being close to the centre isn't as big?
0: That's an interesting question. I think there will be changes in the demographics of cities. Well, on the one hand, there could be some conversion of commercial space near the centre into residential. Now, we know that's happened you know, a lot over the last 20 or 30 years, as you know, dock lands and railway yards and you know, factories have moved out of the city centre, and there's been gentrification and uh, people moving into, into the centre. So on that supply side, there may be some increase in you know, residential occupancy in the centre. On the other side, we might see acceleration of a trend that's already happened of middle-aged people moving to the edges and the city centre being increasingly, you know, young people and old people who can walk to the amenities. So I think there is a view that the amenity
2: value of city centres will improve. You mentioned technology, obviously the easy bit, Zoom meetings, working from home. Is there another wave to come in your imagination that needs planning for?
0: Technical change in the broader picture, Mm. yes. Obviously, automation, uh, digitization and automation is not new. But COVID has accelerated that. Most obviously is, as you say, in remote working. Uh, But in other things, if you've got to redesign your your factory to um, increase space between people, then that makes it more attractive to put some robots in between the people. So I think, yeah, automation will be accelerated, will be
2: brought forward. If I was to try to summarise your view, would it be one that the pandemic has exaggerated forces that were already there but probably won't last for our society?
0: Well, it's brought forward forces that were already there. I mean, yeah, Zoom existed before uh, before the pandemic, But we know from from history that adopting new technologies and really learning how to use new technologies can be a very, very slow process. I mean, the classic example of this is is electricity. Factories used to be vertical and then um, electricity came along and you could distribute power horizontally, but it took about 50 years for people to fully work out the implications of that and make the most of it. Um, so sometimes you know, a shock like this accelerates the adaptation of, of, of new technologies.
2: Are there particular opportunities you think could be grabbed now?
0: Building back better is, is, is the cliche that's used. But, yeah, improving the quality of life in city centres. The ability to not go into work two days a week is a plus exploiting that flexibility, that is a plus, improving amenity, quality of life um, in city centres is a plus, but they're small compared to the human cost of the epidemic.
2: Professor Animals, thanks for talking to us. Okay, thanks. Is globalisation dead or merely wounded? Has China given up on us? Find out how Australia is faring in the new world order after COVID-19 in the next episode of Thought Capital. Look for us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thought Capital is written and produced by Tina Zanu. Editor is Nadia Hume, Executive Producer, Helen Westerman. If you'd like to find out more, go to monash.edu forward slash business.